0: Chapter Fifteen of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Showing how very fond of Oliver Twist the merry old Jew and Miss Nancy were. In the obscure parlour of a low public house in the filthiest part of Little Saffron Hill, a dark and gloomy den where a flaring gas light burnt all day in the winter time and where no ray of sun ever shone in the summer, there sat, brooding over a little pewter measure and a small glass, strongly impregnated with the smell of liquor, a man in a velveteen coat, drab shorts, half-boots and stockings, whom even by that dim light no experienced agent of the police would have hesitated to recognise as Mr. William Sykes. At his feet sat a white coated red-eyed dog, who occupied himself alternately in winking at his master with both eyes at the same time and licking a large fresh cut on one side of his mouth, which appeared to be the result of some recent conflict. Keep quiet, ye warmant! Keep quiet, said Mr. Sykes, suddenly breaking silence. Whether his meditations were so intense as to be disturbed by the dog's winking or whether his feelings were so wrought upon by his reflections that they required all the relief derivable from kicking an unoffending animal to allay them, is matter for argument and consideration. Whatever was the cause, the effect was a kick and a curse, bestowed upon the dog simultaneously. Dogs are not generally apt to revenge injuries inflicted upon them by their masters, but Mr. Sykes' dog, having faults of temper in common with his owner, and labouring perhaps at this moment under a powerful sense of injury, made no more ado but at once fixed his teeth into one of the half-boots. Having given it a hearty shake he retired growling under a form, just escaping the pewter measure which Mr. Sykes levelled at his head. "'You would, would you?' said Sykes, seizing the poker in one hand, and deliberately opening with the other a large clasp-knife, which he drew from his pocket. "'Come here, you bone devil! Come here! Do you hear?' The dog no doubt heard, because Mr. Sykes spoke in the very harshest key, of a very harsh voice, but appearing to entertain some unaccountable objection to having his throat cut, he remained where he was, and growled more fiercely than before, but at the same time grasping the end of the poker between his teeth, and biting at it like a wild beast. This resistance only infuriated Mr. Sykes the more, who, dropping on his knees, began to assail the animal most furiously. The dog jumped from right to left and from left to right, snapping, growling and barking. The man thrust and swore and struck and blasphemed, and the struggle was reaching a most critical point for one or other, when the door suddenly opening the dog darted out, leaving Bill Sikes with the poker and the clasp-knife in his hands. "'There must always be two parties to a quarrel,' says the old adage. Mr. Sykes, being disappointed of the dog's participation, at once transferred his share of the quarrel to the newcomer. "What the devil do you come in between me and my dog for?" said Sykes with a fierce gesture. "I didn't know, my dear," I didn't know," replied Fagin humbly, for the Jew was a newcomer. "Didn't know, you white-livered thief!" growled Sykes. "Couldn't you hear the noise?" "Not a sound of it, as I'm a living man," Bill replied the Jew. Oh no you hear nothing you don't retorted sikes with a fierce sneer sneaking in and out so as nobody hears how you come or go i wish you had been the dog fagin half a minute ago why inquired the jew with a forced smile cause the government as cares for the lives of such men as you as havin half the pluck of curs let a man kill a dog how he likes replied sikes shutting up the knife with a very expressive look that's why.' The Jew rubbed his hands, and sitting down at the table, affected to laugh at the pleasantry of his friend. He was obviously very ill at ease, however. "'Grin away!' said Sikes, replacing the poker, and surveying him with savage contempt. "'Grin away! You'll never have the laugh at me, though, unless it's behind a nightcap. I've got the upper hand over you, Fagin, and damn me I'll keep it. There, "'If I go, you go, so take care of me.' "'Well, well, my dear,' said the Jew, "'I know all that. "'We—we we have a mutual interest, bill a mutual interest.' "'Huh!' said Sykes, as if he thought the interest lay rather more on the Jew's side than on his. "'Well, what have you got to say to me?' "'It's all passed safe through the melting pot,' replied Fagin. "'And this is your share.' it's rather more than it ought to be my dear but as i know you'll do me a good turn another time and-stow that gammon interposed the robber impatiently where is it and Alva? yes yes bill give me time give me time replied the Jew soothingly here it is all safe as he spoke he drew forth an old cotton handkerchief from his breast and untying a large knot in one corner produced a small brown paper packet Sikes, snatching it from him, hastily opened it, and proceeded to count the sovereigns it contained. "'This is all, is it?' inquired Sikes. "'All?' replied the Jew. "'You haven't opened the parcel and swallowed one or two as you come along, have you?' inquired Sikes, suspiciously. "'Don't put on an injured look at the question. You've done it many a time. Jerk the tinkler!' These words in plain English conveyed an injunction to ring the bell. It was answered by another Jew, younger than Fagin, but nearly as vile and repulsive in appearance. Bill Sikes merely pointed to the empty measure. The Jew, perfectly understanding the hint, retired to fill it, previously exchanging a remarkable look with Fagin, who raised his eyes for an instant as if in expectation of it, and shook his head in reply so slightly that the action would have been almost imperceptible to an observant third person. It was lost upon Sykes, who was stooping at the moment to tie the bootlace which the dog had torn. Possibly, if he had observed the brief interchange of signals, he might have thought that it boded no good to him. "Is anybody here?" Barney inquired. Fagin, speaking now that Sykes was looking on without raising his eyes from the ground, "Not a soul," replied Barney, whose words, whether they came from the heart or not, made their way through the nose. Nobody. Inquired Fagin, in a tone of surprise, which perhaps might mean that Barney was at liberty to tell the truth. "'Nobody but Miss Dancy,' replied Barney. "'Nancy!' exclaimed Sikes. "'Where? Strike me blind if I don't honour that there girl for a night of talents!' "'She's been having a plate of boiled beef at the bar,' replied Barney. "'Send her here,' said Sikes, pouring out a glass of liquor. "'Send her here!' Barney looked timidly at Fagin as if for permission. the Jew remaining silent and not lifting his eyes from the ground, he retired and presently returned, ushering in Nancy, who was decorated with a bonnet, apron, basket, and street-door key complete. You are on the scent, are you, Nancy inquired Sykes, proffering the glass. Yes, I am bill replied the young lady, disposing of its contents, and tired enough of it, I am too. The young brat's been ill and confined to the crib and—'Ah, Nancy, dear!' said Fagin, looking up. Now, whether a peculiar contraction of the Jew's red eyebrows, and the half-closing of his deeply-set eyes warned Miss Nancy that she was disposed to be too communicative, is not a matter of much importance. The fact is all we care for here, and the fact is that she suddenly checked herself, and with several gracious smiles upon Mr. Sykes, turned the conversation to other matters. In about ten minutes' time Mr. Fagin was seized with a fit of coughing, upon which Nancy pulled her shawl over her shoulders, and declared it was time to go. Mr. Sykes, finding that he was walking a short part of her way himself, expressed his intention of accompanying her, and they went away together, followed, at a little distance, by the dog, who stunk out of a back yard as soon as his master was out of sight. The Jew thrust his head out of the room door when Sykes had left it looked after him as he walked up the passage, shook his clenched fist, muttered a deep curse, and then, with a horrible grin, reseated himself at the table, where he was soon deeply absorbed in the interesting pages of the hue and cry. Meanwhile Oliver Twist, little dreaming that he was within so very short a distance of the merry old gentleman, was on his way to the bookstall. When he got into Clerkenwell he accidentally turned down a by-street which was not exactly in his way. But not discovering his mistake until he had got half-way down it, and knowing it must lead in the right direction, he did not think it worth while to turn back, and so marched on, as quickly as he could, with the books under his arm. He was walking along, thinking how happy and contented he ought to feel, and how much he would give for only one look at poor Dick, who, starved and beaten, might be weeping bitterly at that very moment. When he was startled by a young woman screaming out very loud—'Oh, my dear brother!' And he had hardly looked up to see what the matter was, when he was stopped by having a pair of arms thrown tight around his neck. "'Don't!' cried Oliver, struggling. "'Let go of me. Who is it? What are you stopping me for?' The only reply to this was a great number of loud lamentations from the young woman who had embraced him, and who had a little basket and a street-door key in her hand oh my gracious said the young woman i have found him oh oliver oliver oh you naughty boy to make me suffer such distress on your account come home dear come oh i've found him thank gracious goodness heavens i've found him with these incoherent exclamations the young woman burst into another fit of crying and got so dreadfully hysterical that a couple of women who came up at that moment asked a butcher's boy with a shiny head of hair anointed with suet who was also looking on whether he didn't think he had better run for the doctor, to which the butcher's boy, who appeared of a lounging, not to say indolent, disposition, replied that he thought not. "'Oh, no, no, never mind,' said the young woman, grasping Oliver's hand, "'I'm better now. Come home directly, you cruel boy, come!' "'What's the matter, ma'am?' inquired one of the women. Oh, ma'am, replied the young woman, he ran away near a month ago from his parents, who were hard working and respectable people, and went and joined a set of thieves and bad characters and almost broke his mother's heart. Young wretch, said one woman. Go home, you little brute, said the other. I am not, replied Oliver, gravely alarmed. I don't know her. I haven't any sister, or father and mother either. I'm an orphan. I live at Pentonville. Only hear him how he braves it out cried the young woman. "'Why, it's Nancy!' exclaimed Oliver, who now saw her face for the first time, and started back in irrepressible astonishment. "'You see, he knows me!' cried Nancy, appealing to the bystanders. "'He can't help himself. Make him come home, there's good people, or he'll kill his dear mother and father and break my heart!' "'What the devil's this?' said a man, bursting out of a beer-shop, with a white dog at his heels. "'Young Oliver! "'Come home to your poor mother, you young dog. Come home directly!' "'I don't belong to them. I don't know them. Help! Help!' cried Oliver, struggling in the man's powerful grasp. "'Help!' repeated the man. "'Yes, I'll help you, you young rascal. What books are these? You've been stealing them, have you? Give them here.' With these words the man tore the volumes from his grasp and struck them on the head. "'That's right.' cried a looker-on from a garret-window. That's the way of bringing him to his senses.' "'To be sure,' said a sleepy-faced carpenter, casting an approving look at the garret-window. "'It'll do him good,' said the two women. "'And he shall have it too,' rejoined the man, administering another blow, and seizing Oliver by the collar. "'Come on, you young villain! Here, bull's-eye! Mind him, boy! Mind him!' Weak with recent illness, stupefied by the blows and the suddenness of the attack, terrified by the fierce growling of the dog, and the brutality of the man, overpowered by the conviction of the bystanders that he really was the hardened little wretch he was described to be. What could one poor child do? Darkness had set in. It was a low neighbourhood, no help was near, resistance was useless. In another moment he was dragged into a labyrinth of dark, narrow courts, and was forced along them at a pace which rendered the few cries he dared to give utterance to unintelligible. It was a little moment, indeed, whether they were intelligible or no, for there was nobody to care for them, had they been ever so plain. The gas-lamps were lighted, Mrs. Bedwin was waiting anxiously at the open door, the servant had run up the street twenty times to see if there were any traces of Oliver. And still the two old gentlemen sat perseveringly in the dark parlour with a watch between them. End of chapter 15